0: It is the word of Landru. Joy to you friends and thanks for joining us here in Standard Orbit Trek FM's dedicated show to the original series. My name is Drew or Landru and this is my co-host Mike from Commentary Trek Stars. Hey, how's it going? Hey Mike, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, and today we have a very special guest John Tenudo.
2: Hi guys, how are you?
1: We're we're doing well. Thanks for joining us. You know, Great. I mean like last week we we talked up uh, how, how great your presentations were, and there have been, I mean, like I saw a thing on Twitter, you know, where, you know, someone was like, hey, you know, what, everyone keeps on talking about these talks, and, you know, we, I, never, I never get to see them, because I'm in London, or whatever, you know, and, you know, we, we talked about how the Star Trek Six presentation was the best thing at the con, and, and all that stuff. So, you were
0: voted number one
1: by the Schindler, yeah, by me. So, oh my gosh, wow! It was I was. Thank the, you. The, no, no problem. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for for the the informative talk. But yeah, um, we figured. You know what, Star Trek Six. It's one of those things where it kind of gets lost in the shuffle sometimes, especially since it's the best of the original six movies, right? Yeah. So in my humble opinion. So um yeah so so we figured who better to talk to than than John. So thank oh, you thank very you. much
2: so this i'll send that uh the check to you guys soon
0: (laughs) (laughs) don't we have to pay you because you charge money for these talks and then we're (laughs) getting it for free
2: (laughs) no i'm funny i don't charge so they're free they're always free but i get you know i might get a piece of cake for free or something after
1: oh that's that's good that's something
2: I, i get paid in. i get paid in food (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. Um, you could get one of those uh, little like squid things that they, no, yeah. the rubber
2: squid. Yeah, <laughs> the Klingon dinner.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay.
1: So, um, I guess uh, my 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 first question would be like, this is a movie which had a very rocky start. This is not what Star Trek six was originally going to be. And, you know, one of the things which I, I was saying last week to Drew, like when I was listening to your talk in Vegas, I'm like, man, and you were like kind of like laying out the time frame and, and everything. And I'm like, wow, you know, I, maybe people shouldn't be so worried about Star Trek Beyond because this is a, a leisurely production next to, to what was going on with Star Trek six. But what was it for those people who don't know, what was the original, plan for for star trek six i mean okay star trek five comes out everyone loves it and and then you know they they know that the 25th anniversary is coming up so what what happens next
2: well you know there there is a bunch of uh um you know activities planned for the for the 25th anniversary you know they, they're gonna have the handprints in, in the cement outside of Grauman's Chinese Theater and uh, creation planned uh, the first time ever you would have Shatner and Nimoy touring and they did this big 25-year mission tour together and they were on you know stage for two hours and there were all these different events planned but you know of course as fans you know one of the best ways to celebrate the anniversary of any Star Trek uh, milestone is a, is a new movie uh, and you know we got that uh, you know in the coming up next year with the 50th anniversary so you know there is there are some interesting parallels between a troubled production um, you know certainly in the ramp up and script department for star trek beyond and and star trek six so um but the idea of of them celebrating the 25th anniversary with a movie is actually on the mind of harv bennett Back at the time of Star Trek Four, when it was the twentieth anniversary, and knowing that the twenty fifth was coming around, knowing that four was you know looking like it was going to be a a, a big success um, you know he's beginning to think well what what can we do for the twenty fifth anniversary um, and Ralph winter, who produced you know many of the original Star Trek films um, gone on to produce some of the Marvel movies and things like that he he had an idea that uh, why don't we do a, a prequel? Uh, although that word really wasn't in our vocabulary too much back then, but you know we had had like one or two prequels, right? You know, sort of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and that kind of thing at that era. And what if we did a prequel where we go back in time and see how Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and the rest of the crew met each other and and come up with this movie that ultimately becomes Star Trek: The First Adventure. And um, you know, Harve Bennett likes that idea um, for you know for a couple reasons. One is the the, the you know the reality of the, the the crew aging, and the original plan, which was to introduce David and Savick as sort of replacement characters, bringing in a next generation, if you will, um, didn't work out uh, in the movies, and so there was this sort of looming problem of eventually, what do you what are you going to do to keep the movie franchise going? Uh, with the with the original characters, and uh, so the idea was to do sort of two movies. One would have been a traditional Star Trek sequel, a Star Trek five, six, whatever the number would be at that time, five years from now, in 1991, and but also do this prequel film. And uh, initially, the you know the studio and the executives liked the idea of it. Some got skittish when they learned that. Shatner and, and, you know, Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly wouldn't be in it. And so they crafted a, a, a an intro where the main cast would be sitting around and, and then reminisce. So they would be in the movie. But really, the, the bulk of the film, 95% of it would be telling the story, you know, remember when we were kids and uh yeah, i had a chance to read that script uh by david Lowry, who wrote the script of star trek V, wrote the wrote the script and it it is a really good script uh, i it, it, i think it would have been a, an interesting film it was about um you know kirk it, it opens up uh, you know uh, coincidentally uh, fairly similar to uh, star trek 2009 where you have kirk basically playing a flying a plane Uh, daredevil, you know, stunt plane, test plane kind of thing, Uh, you know, in a cornfield in Iowa. And uh, and, you know, you you get introduced to Kirk and Kirk is going to the academy and at the academy he meets McCoy. And then there's the Spock character. And one of the interesting things is Spock really faces uh, uh, discrimination and prejudice on campus because he's different. And there's this sort of growing movement against green bloods against people who aren't red blooded, uh really who aren't human. And it's and and it's among a small group of people, but it's 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 vocal enough that they're becoming dangerous. And one of the people who leads this uh movement, uh it turns out, is the, this this uh, Starfleet cadet who uh is also a prince of a of you know gave up his you know prince status on his homeworld to come to Starfleet. Um, when he gets basically drummed out of Starfleet, he you know, goes back to that world. And so the film is really about prejudice, discrimination, um, how we deal with it. Uh, there's a pretty funny scene when they're all in the bar and Spock kind of gets drunk. And I mean, it's, 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 it's got very cute moments, but it's not a humorous film at all. Uh, it's much more serious. And you know, it deals with very Star Trek based themes and then of course by the end of the film uh Kirk Spock uh, Scotty and McCoy are on board a ship called the Enterprise not the Enterprise we know and they're part of this sort of you know space battle uh you know the action adventure sequence that occurs so that was the that was the script and um uh right around uh 1990 uh the plug is pulled on that movie now they've done the script They've done some pre-production drawings, things like that. They've started to do location scouting. Um, but the plug is pulled because the idea is, no, let's just do a traditional movie. We want, we want to do a traditional movie with the original crew. And that's that. So they offer Star Trek VI to Harve Bennett again and say, well, look, why don't we do it this way? Let's do the Star Trek VI traditional. Then we'll come back after that and do this Star Trek, the first adventure. And Harve Bennett has said that it said that his feeling was that that was just sort of like, a we're going to tell you that, and we're probably not going to be, be able to do it, or we're not going to want to do it. And, um, cause they, you know, next gen was going to then be kind of coming up to, to take over the, the film franchise. So, um, he was asked to do Star Trek six and had it like he had done two through five, but he, uh, dec- to decline the offer and um so here it is it's may 1990 and uh you know you, you you only have till december 31st 1991 to release a movie and it's you know and call it a 25th anniversary film and uh, they have no script no director no producer no writer no no nothing
1: so that's only like 19 months but hang on let's let's go back and and, and touch on a couple of things that 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 you mentioned, um... Uh, already first off i had never heard this but i mean i guess it kind of makes sense but you're saying like david marcus and and uh savik were kind of being groomed as sort of like replacement characters for the original series crew
2: well to be yeah i mean the, the idea was certainly Savick was a replacement for spock right spock yeah. wasn't going to be in, in any of the films
1: right yeah, I, I um,
2: and 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 david the, the idea basically was that As the characters aged and or if they chose not to do a film, because, I mean, in a way, we were really spoiled as fans. It is extraordinary that we got the original actors, all of them, for so long, um, you know, to to play those roles. And really, where else does that happen? And when we had a shift like with Savick, where you had Robin Curtis taking over for a role, you know, even that didn't sit well with us. We we had had trouble accepting that idea because we we had been so used to that realism, you know, it's not Batman, it's not Superman, where new, you know, even James Bond, where new actors come in, and you just you accept that it's part of that world. And so, you know, very much the design of David and what was always to be, there was always a generational theme, even from the very beginning, outline of, um Harv Bennett back in 1980, where he called, you know, called the war of the generations. I mean, the whole idea of it being a generational thing and bringing in this younger group that would be able to kind of maybe carry the action and adventure part, um, you know, where maybe Kirk and Spock would be more on a ship action, you know, you know, like in Star Trek six, right. There's a very little physical um, action that's required of anybody really beyond uh, Kirk most of the other action is is carried through the ships themselves or you know uh, through 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 dogfights in space and and so seeing where that was kind of where the the franchise was going the idea was to bring in these younger characters who were meant i mean you know that's the theme of of two right everybody's got a a son or a daughter right spock's got a symbolic daughter so kirk has an actual son uh, and and khan has depending on who you want to believe an actual or a uh, symbolic son with yalkum and so that whole idea of bringing in that younger generation thematically worked for the film, but it was also there as a practical purpose of, hey, this can be the, you know, David was going to be the guy to run around and, you know, uh, do things. And what happened is when, when the idea was you know three was going to be about bringing Spock back then uh, Har bennett felt that that they that they didn't necessarily need all those characters and although Savick was probably meant to continue um you know david was sacrificed and carol was not even featured in the script
1: so okay um my my, my second question here would be uh, uh in regards to the uh the sort of like the early years script or what, what was it called was it called starfleet academy uh, the first the first, uh, first adventure,
2: adventure. Was, the, was the was the was the there were several titles, but that was the one that kind of
1: stuck with with the production. Okay, yeah, we we talked about that uh, a long time ago on this show um, because we we didn't read the script, but we read a description of the script that someone put up mm-hmm. online, um, and it it does really seem very much like Star Trek oh nine in a lot of ways, but I guess the the idea of it being around the time of Star Trek four that that this idea was formulated does make a lot of sense because you don't really think about it in, in the historical context, but, you know, that would have been pre next generation, like a lot, a lot of these problems uh, that they seem to be trying to tackle uh, by doing like a, you know, a, a reboot essentially of, of the, the original series and everything. A lot of those problems are solved by bringing in the next generation so I can see kind of the studio's reluctance to do this because it's almost um there's I mean, there's almost no point to it.
0: Yeah. Without having proved that you could do the next generation, how could you do the previous generation? <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, next gen isn't announced really until, until Star Trek four is, you know in people's consciousness, you know, and, and is successful and know that it looks like it's going to be successful. And, um, you know, the other, the other element of that is, uh, yeah, there is similarities uh, between 2009. I think those similarities, though, are probably inevitable similarities. I, I would be very surprised if they even looked at the script um, for 2009, because it certainly is very, very different. There's no Romulan, there's no Nero, there's no uh, Prime Universe Spock or anything like that um, in 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 the uh, first uh, the first adventure script. There's there's a few scenes where you know I know Harv Bennett kind of was suspicious, yeah. you know, um, but uh, and he had mentioned that, you know, that he that one of the reasons he didn't like it was he felt that he, that, that, that these had these scenes, but I think these scenes sort of existed in the script, but you know, yeah, the crop dusting scene and the, and the, and the car stealing scene are, are similar. The ages of the characters though are very different and the, and the motivations are different and there is a bar scene, but it's again, very, very different. And, and really the, the first adventure script Takes place um, quite a bit on Earth, uh, and then and then in the sort of second half is is in space, where and, you know they really get into space pretty quick in Star Trek two thousand and nine, and and the whole plot there's no absolutely no Romulans and Vulcan isn't destroyed or anything like that. So I mean it's very it, it's different, and I think the comparisons that that Harve Bennett might have seen I think were almost the inevitable thing inevitable things right if you're you have Iowa in a movie. Um, but yet you want it to be in the, you know, 23rd century. You do something to kind of jazz it up, you know, and and so you have, you know, it, it just, it's, it's something we're not used to seeing in a you know, a, a regular car in Star Trek, you know, but then it's of course followed by a robot on a, you know, robot policeman or whatever he is, um, who, who, you know, talks to little Kirk. Um, and, uh, same thing in this script where, you know, you make, you make a little bit futuristic and so, um,
1: it is it is a really
2: good script though. I mean, I, I have to say I enjoyed reading it and I and I could see it have being been made. Um and I think that good actors could have done some good things with it. There were some nice moments um in it and uh and you see you know, Kirk and Spock, there isn't the animosity at the start uh, really that there is in the script, but it's uh and I mean in 2009, but it's you know, it takes a while for them to all sort of learn to cooperate with each other and work together as a team. It's a really good script. I, you know, I, I wish, I wish someone had done a book on it or something like that, you know, maybe made a novelization of it.
1: Hey, these days, why not? Why not get IDW to come in and, uh, adapt it into a comic, you know? Uh, Yeah.
2: Why not do all of them do God thing and, you know, do, do do all the ones that we, we should have seen, you know?
1: Absolutely. You know, I mean, geez, I, missed opportunities anyway um <laughs> i you know i remember you you were talking about like with good actors, and I know that that Harve Bennett has talked about sort of his i don't know if you could call it dream casting or or whatever, but he was definitely thinking of like Ethan Hawk as Kirk mm-hmm. and John Cusack as Spock that'd be, yeah that'd yeah. be in, that'd be interesting mm-hmm. I, I could see it
0: especially, yeah, I especially
1: mean, Ethan certainly Hawk. yeah yeah, Not yeah. crazy. So okay, so so this idea is thrown away. And now you said that they were planning on doing both at the same time, or both to come out that year, right? Like when does mm-hmm. when does that idea sort of go away? The idea of doing two movies.
2: Well, it's around April or May of of nineteen ninety that that it's it's known that 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 Harv isn't going to continue, and that you're not going to get a, a Star Trek six under his. Uh, executive producer um, roles. So um, Frank Mancuso, who was the Paramount chief at that time, um, calls Leonard Nimoy in May of
1: 1990. Wait, I'm sorry. Can, him, can we just go back for sure. just one second? Um, sure. W- did Harv Bennett have any plans for a Star Trek VI in the traditional sense? I, aside from like saying, like, I want to make it, but did he have any yeah. like story ideas or anything?
2: No, not, I mean, not to my, not to our research, and I think part of that is because everything that he has said is that, uh, you know, maybe he had a general theme or an idea that he wanted to do, but but he really had put a lot of energy into this. You know, I mean, his his his, his heart was broken. This this was going to be a great film, and he was he put his attention was on this Star Trek the first adventure. Um, and, uh, and I think his, his thinking was, no, we're going to make this thing first, and then a traditional sequel. Uh, and that that was going to be the order of things, which is why he put his energies into that movie first, you know, tackle movie one. At in the first time, I think the studio's point of view was no, they're kind of going kind to of come come out around the same time, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know there was a there was a disconnect there. I, you know, obviously there were communication concerns, right? Because you have Paramounts. I mean, you could totally understand Paramount's perspective, right? They they're being told about this prequel idea, but have no idea you don't have Shatner, Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly, and so on in it, and so somebody somewhere is not fully communicating that information.
1: Yeah. Okay. You know? so, so anyway, OK, so I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but but you were saying I don't know, maybe, no, no. maybe, I don't maybe know. if you can if you can kind of start over your your thought there just to make it clean for the sure. editor or whatever. But so, OK, sure. so 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 there is no there is no Academy movie and we're at at what point right now, like you're saying May of 1990, yeah.
0: May of
2: ni- May 1990. Okay. And um, so Frank Mancuso calls Leonard Nimoy. And asks if he will uh, take on four roles: uh, obviously, act in another Star Trek film, direct it, uh, produce it, executive produce it, and um, you know, come up with the story, uh, you know, the idea of it as he had done for Star Trek IV. Uh, but adding really in Star Trek Four, adding the role of executive producer, which at that in Star Trek Four was filled by Harve Bennett. And Leonard Nimoy was committed to the idea of producing a, uh, a, a 25th anniversary film. He liked that idea. He wanted there to be a uh, he wanted there to be what I guess you could call a goodbye film, you know, a, 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 a farewell film that was focused on um, you know the characters and 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 saying a proper goodbye to them. And so uh, he agreed with the caveat that that's a that's one hat too many. Um, and that, why don't we get Nicholas Meyer to direct, um, and, uh, and, uh, bring him in. And we know that he can write and he can write quickly. Uh, and, and we can talk story with him and that kind of thing. Um, and so, uh, uh, they say, sure. And, uh, he, Leonard Nimoy goes off to, uh, um, Massachusetts in Provincetown at this time. Nicholas Meyer's living in London with his family, but he's vacationing in in Leonard Nimoy's home state of Massachusetts. And uh, Leonard Nimoy calls and asks, you know, I'd like to have a meeting with you. And and he says, sure. And so they take a walk along the beach. And uh, I, I, you know, never wanted to be a, 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 you know, a sea creature before, but I wish I could have been following them along (laughs) in the ocean as they were walking, you know. Um, But the two of them just walked up and down the beach for about two and a half hours. And, um, you know, there were other ideas that were thrown out for Star Trek Six. One was um, an idea that Leonard Nimoy had that to bring both crews together, to bring the next generation and the original sh- crews together. The problem that they had was the problem that existed even in generations. It, that's an awful lot of characters to bring into one movie. How do you service all of them? Um, how do you come up with a story that's plausible where the, the two crews are meeting one another? And, uh, so that idea is kind of, kind of dropped and, uh, they start talking about, well, what, what can we do? And, and, uh, Leonard Nimoy's new idea was, you know, w- let's go back to Star Trek's roots in, in being relevant to what's going on at that time. Right. So back in 1986, uh, April, 1986, I believe it was Chernobyl had occurred and in those ensuing four years, you know, the Soviet Union was starting to uh, show its, it's the cracks and uh, the world was changing. And, you know, I, I remember very much that optimism. I'm sure we all do in the early 90s that, hey, it's all OK now. Right. It's all over. Communism has gone. There's no more enemies to fight and everything's great. Um you know that right here, right now song is all about that, right? Uh, that whole world, and we never got that, of course. But uh, you know that was that was beginning, all that was starting um, around that period of time, and uh, we had signed nuclear, you know, disengagement treaties, and it was looking better. And um, so, what if Star Trek commented on that? What if we used the the Klingons, which had always sort of been a Cold War. A, you know, metaphor alien. What if we use them and and we commented on what happens to people during the Cold War? And then so Nicholas Meyer hearing that immediately starts getting inspiration. So like, let's do Chernobyl in space. Let's do the Wall comes down in space, and it just sort of comes out of of, of Nicholas Meyer. You know, let's let's comment on you know you know what, what, what how would Kirk feel about this and all, all these sorts of issues. Um, and this really and a big theme at that time academically was whether there was any history left, you know, were we at the end of history, you know, a very postmodern question. Was there nothing that could be new anymore? Um, and, and, and with the end of the Soviets, was that it was that, was that, you know, was life just going to be kind of like, you know, after that. And that becomes a theme in there as well, brought in by, by Nicholas Meyer. Not that Nimoy and and Meyer necessarily saw eye to eye on that script. I, I think um, Leonard Nimoy wanted a larger exploration of the actual Klingon culture, um, and for Nicholas Meyer and for Denny Denny Martin Flynn, who will write the script, it it's a little bit more of a political thriller, which is still focused, you know, a little more on the Federation. And so, but that's that's where the idea of the script comes out of, and that's just a, you know really a, a interesting venue of of the beach um and uh and that's where the story comes out of so so nicholas meyer goes back to london and his writing partner denny martin flynn is in los angeles and uh using email which was obviously relatively new to most people at that time uh they write the script via email back and forth with each other and eventually come up with the script the uh the final version of their script is ready December 28th 1990 which is
1: less than 1 year before the movie's supposed to be in theaters yeah i mean that, that that time frame is crazy i mean when you think about that it's like okay so they started this they they like asked him if it was in May of 90, 1990 then that's like 19 months prior to the release date so yeah, yeah the equivalent in star trek beyond time would have been like january of of this year and we mm-hmm. we had a director and everything by january right so yep, plenty yep. of time although it sounds like the script writing process might have been i don't know well it i don't know it is interesting hearing like simon pegg talk about writing the script now and how he's saying like well we don't really have all the dialogue yet but you know whatever we'll figure that out that's easy
2: <laughs> yeah well you know it's funny i well you know from uh the little birdies that are there, uh you know, and you, you how much you can believe anybody's opinion on anything because everyone's going to have their own opinion. But all I've heard is really good stuff uh from the people that are that are there or know know enough uh, about the production that you know, to the, to Justin Lin gets it; he knows what Star Trek is all about, and this is very much a Star Trek film. So I'm hope you know, and obviously you got Simon pegg writing it, so uh, at least perhaps, you know half writing it, and so it's. Uh, you know, I, I I'm I'm very hopeful that uh, they're gonna be able to, to do what you know, I'm hoping for a repeat of, of Star Trek Six in the way of, you know, a great movie coming out being born out of all of that, um limitations and and, and and struggles
1: and restrictions. Me too. Uh so okay, so where are we I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, so, yeah sorry, so I, I know what I was yeah. I know what I was gonna say. I know what I was gonna say. Um if you read uh Nicholas Meyer's book, you know, View from the Bridge, you know, he talks about how he had just made a Cold War movie just prior to this called Company Business with Gene Hackman and uh, Mikhail Baryshnikov and how he kind of thought that he sort of messed that one up and he saw this as sort of an opportunity to do it again, but good. And, you know, I personally like Company Business quite a bit, but there's no doubt that Star Trek VI is the far better film, you know? So that's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, okay, so we've got the script and we're about to head into production. Is that where we're at now?
2: Yeah, they, and and there's still going to be changes, uh, you know, important changes that are coming along. One, one is that, of course, once you have the final version of the script, you have to go through the budgeting process. And um, unfortunately, uh, the budget, uh, you know, they, they, they had they had been told a certain amount. And the budget that came back was much lower. And in fact, the movie was canceled. Um, in fact, a letter went out uh, saying, you know, thank you all for all the work that you did. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to make the movie because we don't have the money to make this film. Ag- agreements were, were reached. Um, uh, and uh, they eventually got to a budget amount of $27 million, which to kind of put that in context was about the same exact budget as Star Trek V um, and, which had been made several years earlier and, uh, and, le- you know, less than if my memory serves, you know, either three to 6 million, somewhere around there, less than return of the Jedi, which had been made seven years prior. And so, um, it was a, you know, granted star Wars has more effects in it, of course, but, uh, uh, it was, uh, it was not a lot of money. Um, and so, uh, there, there has to be trims that are made. And, and what happens is part, parts of the script start being, um, re reworked. One of the, one of the big differences is the film opened up with a very, very, uh, interesting, um, about 10 minutes, uh, eight minutes, you know, however long it would have run the sequence where we meet Kirk. He's in, he's with, uh, Carol Marcus, um, and uh they're in his apartment he's retired and they're you know making googly eyes at each other and a courier comes to the door and uh that was the role that was going to be played by christian slater and the courier was going to uh, tell kirk basically give kirk a pad kirk was going to look at it and be like uh you know are you kidding and uh then carol gets it you're being reactivated and uh there's a really great line in the script where um <laughs> the uh the courier goes, you know, Sir, do you want me to wait while you get into uniform and uh and uh Kirk quotes Thoreau and says, you know, beware of enterprises requiring new clothes. Which, that was a great, <laughs> you know, great line. Um so the the two of them then go off and, and Kirk goes and meets each of his crew. So you get uh you know he goes and meets uh Scotty is, is being is a teacher at the academy teaching about the uh uh, the bird of prey and, you know, the cloaking device to cadets and who runs a, a, a talk show radio program and Chekhov is playing um, chess with a unbeknownst to him with a telepath, which is why he's losing. Um, and, uh, and he goes and and he goes, gets Dr. McCoy, who's drunk at a medical party where he's you know, telling all these young doctors how how much of an idiot they there. And, um, and, you know, when you look at the budget of that, you know, Chekhov's outfit, his civilian clothes would have cost $3,000. Just the clothes themselves were, would have been an enormous budget, let alone reconstructing, you know, 23rd century Earth, which was something the original films couldn't do a lot of because of the the, the limitations of budget and time and special effects. So, um that sequence in its entirety is just taken out of the script and replaced with a one line where Scotty says, you know, it suits me just fine. I bought a boat. You know, there's like a one line reference, a And, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be chairing a conference. I mean, it's a couple lines of dialogue replace that whole thing. And uh, that has to be taken out. Also, Kittimer was supposed to have a much bigger um opening ceremony, you were going to see parades and and this all this pageantry as the as the speeches began and that 's you know all reduced to a matte painting um you know uh you know uh, of of Kittimer and you see some Klingons standing there so it's the this 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 there's portions of the script that are changed the other big change is um you know uh the original version of the script has Savick as the bad guy. Uh, there's no Valeris in the script; it's Savick, and it's pretty much word for word the same dialogue, um, except there's a little more animosity between Kirk and Savick because they have a pre-established relationship with each other. Um, it, it, there there are some differences. Um, obviously, they don't need to introduce her as the first graduating in her class or who Savick is and that sort of thing uh, in the in the script, but. Um, uh, it's, uh, uh, the, uh, Christy Alley, uh, the actress who played the role originally was who Nicholas Meyer wanted. Cause that was his Savick. And, uh, he had cast her as Savick and she wanted to do it. Unfortunately, the, the sh- very short window of production time they had, she couldn't because she had already committed to a film. So instead of recasting it again, uh, he created a new character named Eris, Well, actually, named by Kim Cattrall, Ares, and then uh, Nicholas Meyer added the vowel to it to give it a sort of Vulcan-sounding uh, uh, ring. And uh, Kim Cattrall was the one of the original choices for Savick back in, in for Wrath of Khan. So, so, so it came full circle. Um, and Kim Cattrall was very dis- involved in it, the look of the character to differentiate it from from Savick. So, so although the script is done. There's still lots of changes uh, and trials and tribulations uh, tribulations uh, that they face um, until they actually start filming. They begin filming August 16th, 1991, and they have to finish filming uh, by July, and they do. They finish July 2nd, 1991. So they also have a very short window in which to film the, the movie.
1: Is it April April 16th?
2: Yeah, April 16th, okay. they start the film, and then they finish July 2nd. Okay. Uh, with with you know uh, production, and then of course they move right into post
1: production. So July. So that's like five months before. And I know that things are different now than they used to be, but like five months before release. Whereas mm-hmm. now, what I, I think they said they're going to be finishing up in like September or something like that, probably, which is still like right, like right. eight or nine months before release so
2: and of course and and where they can ship footage you know beam footage instantaneously back and editing can begin right but editing and editing and special effects can begin as soon as they've processed the you know there's no processing as soon as the film is beamed over so i mean i think uh are brought over is just loaded into the computer if it's not a digital film if it's digital film it's just beamed there so it's it's a totally different world um where you know there's no there's There's no models being made uh, for most Hollywood films today that aren't CG models. And so they had to construct new models and also refurbish the old models in addition to filming those models. I mean, all that work had to be done um, and much, much of it done, you know, post-production.
1: Okay, going back a little bit, I'm sorry, I'm always going back a little bit, but this, there was so much information and, you know, things and little points or whatever. Um, the idea of bringing Savic back is really interesting, and the idea of bringing Kirstie Alley back is really interesting, and I sort of love the sort of, like, you know, punk- nature of that decision like screw those movies i'm gonna get my savik but um <laughs> i i think that that's kind of interesting i'm surprised that the studio would go along with that
2: well there was there was resistance uh particularly by uh gene ronberry um who had felt that by that time uh, savik had become a beloved character and uh and that by having that character be the saboteur um you were in essence putting a pall over you know her previous uh appearances and i think there's certainly truth to that i can i can understand though the desire to have a a character that really would surprise you be the saboteur cuz right i mean in a way when you watch Star Trek six, although to me, it's, it's, you know, fantastic. And, and, and all, you know, I go back and forth depending on my mood, which is my favorite Star Trek film, but it's either two or six, you know, depending on what day it is. Um, and, and I love six, but you know, you do sort of know that it has to be. Valeris, I mean, in a way, right? I mean, because she's a red shirt in in a different way in this film, where she stands out as the new character and therefore is likely the saboteur. But luckily, they're smart enough to put in other surprises, right? Where you have a Klingon bird of prey that is invisible. I mean, there's enough in there where you're just like, cool, cool. Oh, oh, okay, cool, cool. and I think it would have been more powerful had it had been Savick because you really truly would have been surprised. I mean, it would be like making, you know, Snoopy, you know, an evil character or something in, in the peanuts movie. Um, you know, uh, it's uh, you know, it's, it, it would have been a genuine surprise. I, I wish in a way that had happened, but I, I like Valar, I like Valeris. I think she's an interesting character. Um, and I think they're able to play that differently you know, Spock and Savick uh, in the books, when they marry each other, I, I always find that to be, frankly, kind of creepy um, because my my understanding of the conception of the character and certainly the way that it's presented in Star Trek, Two is not a romantic relationship. There's a father daughter relationship and he rescues her as a little girl, you know, uh, from from her planet. And, and I just it just uh, um, I never understood that 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 line within the books where they got married. Um, but Valeris, she's, she's, a she's got a flirtation with her. I mean, she's, she, you could see that, that, you know, which then you have that payoff of that Vulcan mind meld, which is so violent and, 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 uh, you know, played in a way that you You see this intimacy between the two characters, but it's forced and it's just, you know, really a a scene where you start, you know, going, oh, my gosh, you know, what does this all mean? Um, And then I don't think with Savick that would have played in a different way. That would have been like child abuse. You know, I mean, it's just so I think, you know, it's good that she wasn't in there, but it would have been interesting had she been in there.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. So. Okay, so we're I uh, I forget where we're at now. I know that the the movie had been canceled, but then they found the money, right? And now it's back on yep. track, right? So back
2: on track, they're filming, yeah, and they're bringing in um some really great people to work on the movie um who really contributed a great deal to it. You know, I think um as much as the actors deserve credit for any Star Trek production, all the behind the scenes artists uh you know, deserve credit because uh, they're you know they're the ones that are pulling the ropes that make the door open you know that makes us believe that that the doors are you know operate on some sort of futuristic technology but um you know one of the people that they brought in was um Hiro Narita who was a uh, um you know from 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 Seoul Korea but he was you know came to Hawaii and he had trained at the San Francisco Art Institute um and he had done he was a director of photography on Never Cry Wolf and The Rocketeer uh, some really great films. And so he was kind of used to dealing with, uh, you know, big, big productions. Um, and, and he really contributed a great deal to the film. You know, one of Nicholas Meyer's ideas, which we, we certainly see in two and, and in, and in six, uh, also was the idea of bringing that nautical theme into Star Trek. And that's, so for him that Star Trek six, yeah, Star Trek II was the naval cruiser above the water, and the and the you know I'm sorry, two submarines rather was Star Trek II, right? In the Mutara Nebula, they can't see each other. They're in essence underwater doing silent runnings. And then you Star Trek VI, you have the Enterprise as the visible ship above the water, and then you have the submarine under the water, which is this hidden bird of prey. And it's, that theme of trying to tie into the nautical imagery and also the nautical theme, uh, subconscious themes of the film. Uh, is part of what Nicholas Meyer asks the design teams to do and the creative artists to do. So one of the things that Hiro Narita thinks of is to do spotty lighting, which is all over Star Trek VI, where you have lights shining down and otherwise you you might have sort of darkness or there isn't a lot of illumination around a character. And that produces sort of a submarine naval feel to it. Uh, at least thinking of the Hollywood presentation of what we think of as a naval, you know, vessel, and it also is great because it hid the sets. Right, you you didn't need when they're when they're doing the whole C and C scene and Spock is talking about what had happened on the Klingon homeworld and Kirk is given his orders by the command. You know, you don't see you know a great deal of that set because of the spotty lighting that's used, and that's smart when you don't have a lot of money. It's a it's a way to save money. So uh, Hiro Narita was able to use the spotty lighting to meet the creative vision of the director at the same time it solved the budgetary problem. And he was also very big on trying to do practical effects in the camera. So when you see the assassins kill that that Klingon guard and the Klingon guard kind of kind of the Klingon guards kind of go spinning down the hallway, um, that was done in camera. And uh, you know they tra- he, he Hiro Narita tried to do as much in camera as he could. And, um, you know, he was assisted by uh, the first camera in the movie was a, a woman uh, still working in the industry named Kristen Glover. Uh, she had worked on The Rocketeer, um, and she's a founder of a group called Behind the Lens, an association of professional camera women. And, um, you know, she, she was a talented camera, you know, operator herself, and she was the first camera on Star Trek VI. That's the first film in Hollywood history where a, a woman was the first camera. And she handles that camera masterfully. I, you know, that scene where Kirk stands up and goes fire and that camera pulls in, I mean, that adds so much to the sequence. And that's all, you know, Hiro Narita and, 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 and Kristen Glover's work. So, you know, they, they deserve a great deal of credit for, for their contributions and, and also helping to keep the budget down.
1: Okay, I'm going to ask you what may possibly be the nerdiest question ever asked On a Star Trek podcast, so I apologize in advance, but I have to know, in your research, especially in regards to the camera department, was it ever revealed as to why they chose to shoot this movie in Super 35? Because it's the only Star Trek movie that has not been shot in anamorphic, (laughs) and I'm dying to know why.
2: Yeah, you know what? I would recommend. That there is actually a source that you can look at, I believe, if my memory is right. Cinefex did an issue on Star Trek VI. And in there, there was discussion of that. And that was a decision by Hiro Narita um, to film that way. And I think that was. Part, be, he talks about that. He talks about the challenges of filming with, with that. Um, if my memory serves, it, he felt it would bring a realism to it, um, and uh, and a kind the kind of feel they were looking for. Um, and but that was his choice. And they have a whole discussion of that with him. Um, in that, I'll I can actually scan that for you and uh, and send it
1: to you. So if you're interested in that, <laughs> I, I I would be interested in that because that's something which I've always wondered. And yeah, don't even get me started on the aspect ratio of Star Trek VI. We'll just go on forever. So, <laughs> as Drew knows, <laughs> but yeah, okay. Well, that's that's interesting. That's interesting. So, so okay. So so they make the movie, right? Um, stop me if I'm skipping over anything. But but they they make the movie. And uh, then, I mean, were there any challenges in post-production in terms of getting it out fast enough or anything like that? I mean, I know that that was definitely a challenge on the motion picture. But did they kind of have a better handle on things this time around?
2: Well, I think they were. You know, at the at the production was a, was a much smoother, certainly way smoother than the, the, the motion picture. I mean, they were they were rushed, but they had enough time to have a good time. And so, you know, they they, they really had a talented team. Like, for example, one of the um, things I love about the way the film was made was that uh, you know when you when you think of of uh, Rua Pente, and you take out the Alaskan scene, right? Which was obviously filmed outdoors. Second unit, you know, helicopter work, beautiful alien-looking um, landscape. Take that out of the equation. And Rurapente, whenever you see them inside, they actually film that outside. And whenever you see them outside, they film that inside. So uh, when they made, they built a massive set um, in in um, right near the Hollywood sign in Bronson Canyon. Uh, and th- but it had no no top, so when you see Kirk hitting and, and Kirk is you know punching out the you know, well, well, well kicking in the in the inappropriate area in the knee, um, you know the horned alien and they and when they have all the sequence in Rua Pente, uh, where Kirk is is you know the alien wants his jacket and all of that, and that's all done outside. And the idea was to make it, and they filmed that at night, and the idea was to make it look like it was an indoor, underground um, cavern by filming at night and that that lighting would help them. But then when you see him fighting Martia and they're rolling around and then he turns into himself and they're fighting, that, that's all done on a soundstage. So whenever they're outside, they're inside. Whenever they're inside, they're outside. But that shows the, you know, that and that wasn't a small set. I mean, that was an enormous set. And so you had a lot of talented people working on it. Herman Zimmerman, of course, worked on this film and, and repurposed many of the sets from Next Generation as a way to save money. So the president's office is ten forward. When the president is talking to Azit Burr, he's he's you're looking at the bar. That's that's Guinan's bar. And and then when Azit where Azit Burr is on the screen talking about her father, that's that painting that's behind uh, Guinan and 10 Forward. Uh, you know, the doors that open up in there are, are the 10 Forward doors. The, the Kirk's quarters and Spock's quarters are Data's quarters. <laughs> you know, so they they were they they reused what they could reuse, but 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 also created in, incredibly impressive sets like the Klingon Courtroom and, and the and the Ruropenthe Cave set and all of that. So, um, you know, they were a pretty well oiled machine at that time. A lot of the people that worked on this film were either Um, veterans of previous Star Trek productions like Herman Zimmerman or were just professionals themselves who really brought that creativity that, you know, Nicholas Meyer talks about the arts are thriving on creativity is one of his great ideas. And, and, you know, giving people a chance to work on these films gave them a chance to figure out how do I produce something of high quality when I have very little to maybe to work with, and um you know so uh it was a smoother production in that regards, even though there was a in a way a bigger time crunch on them uh probably than any other Star Trek film I would imagine, with maybe the exception of the first film
1: so so the movie comes out, and i know I know that you were i'm sure there you know waiting anxiously on opening night um yeah. First, first movie unofficially, by the way, first movie ever to have Dolby Digital surround sound. So mm-hmm. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But uh, what what was what was the reaction by you and everyone else when when the when the thing came out? Like, do you do you remember? Do you remember where you saw it on opening night? Assuming you saw it on. Opening
2: yep, night? I saw it. I saw it at the Skokie theater, mm-hmm. uh, outdoor Skokie theater, mm-hmm. uh, at the in an uh, old orchard. Okay. Uh, and um, I. I clearly remember, you know, when you when the first time we saw in fact, I saw it that night and I saw it the night after. And there are a couple of things I remember about it. One was I lost a bet. Um, I really thought Kirk was going to die in this. And, uh, uh, I got, I got, I got suckered by the ads that showed him being blown away. Um, and, uh, I lost the bet and had to pay for my friend's ticket. You know, I remember that, but I remember, uh, both opening night and the night after the night after I saw it at the Webster place by, uh, DePaul hmm. and, uh, 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 which is across from the, you know, uh, on Lincoln Avenue. And, um, uh, which I think was the old biograph, wasn't it? I think was not that old biograph, anyway. Um, so uh, both nights that I saw it, the audience, when when that, that last 15 minutes, when they're doing the countdown, and you've got Chang spouting the 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 Shakespeare, and you've got Cliff Eidelman's amazing music, and just the tension when that Klingon bird of prey blows up the only other two times I've seen audiences react that way were Rocky, the end of Rocky and the, and, and the end of the first star Wars when they blew up the death star, Yeah, the entire place erupted in applause. Um, when that cling cause you were just like, yeah, finally, you know, <laughs> thank God, you know, uh, it was just, it was brilliantly edited, excellent script. Everything just came together. and, I remember thinking, you know, I was, I was, uh, I had every emotion that I I guess you could add. I thrilled that it was such a great film. I was sad that this was going to look to appear to be the last film, the last time I would ever see them, um, together like that. Um, but no disappointment, you know, I, there was nothing about it. I walked away except that, you know, hoping that there, that, that wasn't going to be the last one. And, you know, audiences really responded to this film, um, you know, made $95 million, which for a Star Trek film, you know, was only a few million shy of $100 million, which is not usual back then for a Star Trek film to break $100 million. And And, uh, you know, there were 126 films that were released that year in the United States, and Star Trek VI was number 15, uh, highest grossing. So it was it was a very successful film financially. It was also successful. You know, it got Academy Award nominations for makeup and for sound editing. It got a Hugo nomination for best dramatic presentation. It won the Saturn Award for best science fiction film, um, and always rates high in, in in most lists of people's favorite favorite Star Trek films. And a lot of that has to do with the script and the charm of the actors um and the way those characters interact with each other, I mean by that time, not only did they know the characters uh you know we knew the characters and 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 Nicholas Meyer knew the characters, and just it was just the the interactions between those characters so smooth and nice and wonderful um that forget all the great action and intrigue and social commentary it was like friends you watching friends and feeling comfortable watching friends. And I, I do wish that the film had gotten more attention. Um, I think because it was released so close to Christmas and the end of the year, it didn't get as much attention as it deserved. Um, and there's really no reason why this film wasn't as big as Khan, except of course, Ricardo Montalbán's presence added a dimension to Khan that, 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 you know, um, you couldn't replicate without him, but, uh, you know it's it's just a fantastic movie and i and i and you know i i i like both editions you know <clears throat> i like the director's edition um and i and i and i think the directors edition the additions that were made in that edition <laughs> sounds like a Seinfeld routine um <laughs> it, i i is uh you know i i i they added to the script they they didn't detract from the script you know they weren't gratuitous what what was put back in in the director's edition i think how did you what were your what were your experiences
1: what about you drew oh, watching star trek for, 6 for the first time yeah did you see it in the
0: theater oh heaven's no okay. uh for some reason my dad took me to see star trek 5 but i don't think i saw star trek 6 i <laughs> uh, i think that he was frightened that it would be like star trek 5 And we'd have to watch McCoy put his dad down again. Uh, That was traumatic. Uh, I I, I think I remember the the only real vivid memories I have of Star Trek VI and seeing it is uh, watching it on VHS at my friend's house. We would play with his micro-machine toys and play Doom, and then when we weren't playing Doom, we were watching Star Trek movies and and i really remember i remember that being like the first time i watched it watched it and was like wow this is a really good movie but yeah. i didn't i didn't see it in
1: theaters or anything like that mike when was the first time you saw star trek 6 was it right after star trek 5 <laughs> no it wasn't because my aunt only had the first 5 star trek movies so oh. star trek 6 it, it 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 had been released on video yet but it wasn't yet priced for sale so um interestingly like I lived in a two flat and we lived on the top floor and my aunt and uncle lived on the bottom floor and my aunt and uncle were gone. This was like a couple months after I had seen all the movies for the first time, except for, well, six. Um, My aunt and uncle were out of town for the weekend or something like that. And they had HBO <laughs> and I looked in the TV guide and I'm like, Oh, star Trek six is playing right now. Let me go down and watch that. But it had started up like, 20 minutes ago or something so I came in basically like right after the dinner scene I can't believe this I'm ashamed of myself for doing that (laughs) I mean today Mike would you know kill 13 year old Mike for doing something that disrespectful or whatever but yeah so the first time I saw Star Trek 6 was yeah 20 minutes in, but...
0: Completely out of
1: context. Yeah, but I I really did like it, you know, so much so that, you know, like a couple weeks later, I I rented it from Blockbuster so that I could watch the entire thing. And I bought it the day it it came... I remember pre-ordering the the video cassette from uh, Musicland and uh, getting it, you know, the day that it came out because I liked it that much. Uh, But yeah, I I think it's... I mean, now I think it's great. And as far as the, the director's cut is concerned... Um, I do like the director's cut um more than the theatrical cut for sure uh i the only thing about it which annoys me is the um the little uh flashes of people yeah. to let you know who they are. I think That's they could have done the that <laughs> they should have done that yeah with the sound with, with sound That's effect the and in the and the the flash of whatever they should have just done. A quick, like, cut, you know, just sort of like a, a more abstract, sort of like cutting like subliminal al- kind of thing. Well, like, like the Limey, you know, where it's like the audio and everything stays exactly the same, and you just have like flashes of these people, oh, not with cool. like, not with like flash effects, but little, you, you literally are just like cutting in shots of these people and then cutting back. And it would be very sort of like, you know, 60s paranoia thing, which I think would be in keeping with you know, the type of movie that it is and everything like that, that would, that's my only gripe about it. I like the fact that it has a taller aspect ratio and uh, which you can now get in HD on uh, iTunes, by the way. So there you go, people. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, I do like the director's cut, I think better than, than the theatrical for sure. Yeah. Yes. So that's that. I mean,
2: it's, yeah it's interesting uh, the the you know looking at the film now i've actually um uh been fortunate enough to to, to discuss this via email a little bit with with nicholas meyer and and you know the uh, the younger people that are coming today to the films and seeing it at least from my whatever my an, ancillary you know antidotal conversations are worth with with fellow fans um Star Trek 6 isn't you know there there is no cold war mentality among a younger person right among an 18 19 year old there's no memory of the cold war and living with that and so um it doesn't it doesn't resonate about that with them but it resonates with I've, I I as I've asked a lot of them see it as some kind of like Iraq metaphor theme about war ending and how war ends. So the the general theme of the film stays the same, what happens when a war ends. But the Cold War aspect of it is lost a little bit to a more actual war mentality. So like they're, they're, they're seeing the Klingons more as characters over they had an actual war with one another. And the other thing that's been interesting is seeing how younger fans see you know, we always talk about the, the viewing order of the Star Wars films, but in many ways, the viewing order of the Star Trek films can be adjusted too, um, in a way, or you can watch them in a certain way. And, you know, two, three and four are certainly a trilogy of films, uh, you know, one, five, each following directly after the other. But you can also put two and six together. Oh, yeah. um, in a way, where where you skip, you know, you skip three, four, and five, and I'd never recommend that, but I'm just saying you can skip it, and put two and six together as a companion piece, um, because, of course, the, the David arc carries through into six from two, and also from three, um, but, uh, you know, you there's, there's sort of a carry-through there, and I think it, it's interesting to put those two films together some night if people are uh, you know, wanna watch some Star Trek films to watch two and six back to back and how you might feel about those looking at those as if you were watching them for the first time.
1: No, I think it makes a, a great double feature. In a lot of ways it is kind of like an Alpha and Omega in terms of, you know, the those characters in the movies in in a lot of ways. I mean I mean that's the other thing about Star Trek six is it really is I mean, for a show and we've talked about this before, but for a show that never had like a series finale it is the perfect series finale you know
2: yeah it's funny you mention that just today we finished i've uh, been showing um uh, mary Jo and i have been showing our son Nikki um uh all the star treks you know in in, in, in order and everything and, and we just finished the original show we, we we've been going out of order and letting him choose which series to to, to start with right? cool. and uh we've, we finished uh, the original series today um, and his reaction was, but it didn't end. <laughs> and I was like, well, it, 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 first of all, back then TV shows in general didn't end because they didn't have arcs. Right. And, and even if they, even if they did like the fugitive or something like that, they knew they were ending, uh, in such a way that they could produce a final episode or something that felt like a final episode. And, and, um. You know, it, 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 this really is a great send off for the crew because we never did get that.
1: H- has he seen the movies yet or, or not?
2: Yeah. You know, he you know, he's he, you know, Star Trek is is always on in our house. Yeah. So I mean, he's, yeah. you know, when I say when I say we're showing him the shows, you know, a lot of times I'll we'll say I've seen this one. And I'm like, well, that's all right, son. You're going to watch again. Um,
1: <laughs> get used to. it.
2: And uh, <laughs> because it's my it's an obligation I have as a good father. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, to raise you properly, but we're watching them sort of in order now and, 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 and being dedicated to a series as opposed to sort of throwing it out for background or, you know, uh, you know, when you're, when you're, we're, we're making a, you know, Star Trek model or something and they throw a movie on. So he's seen all the movies. Um, but, you know, I think sometimes he's seen them in the way that, you know, they're sort of, on seeing them and not sat down and, and watch them, you know, um, He's gone to see the last two in the theaters, and, and he's really sat down and watched four and six, and you know uh, most of like one E's. One E, I don't think he's sat, he's sat through that um, yet. Um, so is
1: that the next—I mean, I guess what I I'm getting mean, at I Yeah,
2: we're, we're doing the animated—we we started the animated show tonight. Uh-huh. We're already done. He did. The, he chose Deep Space Nine first.
1: Oh, um, good. Then he good, chose,
2: good. Yeah. Yeah, and then he chose Voyager. Mm. Then he chose Enterprise and then that was where I, I sort of put my foot down and just said, you know what, Nick, I think I watch Enterprise after I, I think you want to watch Enterprise after the original show because so many of the episodes are either are sequels or references or or explain something that you'll get more out of Enterprise if you watch the original show. So he he agreed to that and we watched the original show. We're gonna do the Animated show. Then we're going to do the movies, and then we move on to Enterprise, and uh, and then Next Generation. So that's 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 our viewing for the next year and a half or so, <laughs> whatever it's going to be.
1: Drew, he's going to finish the animated series before you do. No, he won't. I <laughs> watched an episode the other day.
0: Oh, good. Because good. of you. All right. Instead of watching Clone Wars, which I'm
1: four episodes
0: away from the end of. I've I, I watched. It. Episode of the re- animated series.
1: Well, now you're going to make me feel guilty, but whatever. Okay.
0: <laughs>
1: <sighs> well, uh, to to wrap this up, any any final thoughts on Star Trek Six that uh, that 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 you want to share, John, or or does that pretty much cover it?
2: Well, I think it covers it. You know, I hope people, um, you know, uh, if the, that they enjoyed the the look at the history today of of it, and if they. You know, want to learn more about the making of it? There is that really great uh, Cinefix article that was done back in 1991. You can probably get it on eBay or, or something. Um, if people want to pick it up, or I, there may even be—I um, think they may do those digitally. I can't remember. Well, I know
1: that, that there's been uh there's I know there's been like a Kickstarter campaign of some sort in order to get all of them, like uh, in a digital realm of something they've been trying to do that. And I think uh, I don't know if it happened yet or not, but I know they've been working on that for about a year now. So it might be. Out and,
2: and I just realized, too, I, I made a mistake. Uh, the, the discussion of the, there, there is the sin effects and that's 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 mostly about the um, special effects there is also an American cinematographer magazine and that's where they talk about the aspect ratio. If my memory serves, I don't want anybody buying something. I I can't remember which of the two issues they talk about that. in, but in one of those two, they both had dedicated, you know, extensive coverage of star Trek six. And, you know, Mark Altman wrote a book, the making of star Trek six too. Yeah. Um, yeah, With, uh, I think with, Edward Gross I can't remember if he did with that one with him or not but he it was by Mark Altman and it's a good it's a very good making of book too so unfortunately that was an you know an unofficial book if I remember, my memory serves right it was not you know it wasn't like Star Trek 5 or 2 which both had official making of books and and, um, but it's a really good book. It's worth getting your hands on if you can and, and really, uh, celebrating and thinking about the contributions of all the behind the scenes people. So I, you know, I, 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 there are sources out there and obviously the DVDs and Blu-rays have really good makings of on there. So, um, you know, there's a lot more out there about Star Trek six and, and a lot more to learn. So, um,
1: uh, hopefully people will enjoy doing that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much for for joining us today. I mean, it's it's kind of great, and you know, especially you know, for people who weren't able to make it to your your convention appearances, to kind of get to get it get a taste of 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 what those experiences are like, even if we don't get all the great pictures in the audio format. But you know, we're limited by audio, so you know, you do? Know. um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, g- great, great info and everything like that, and. You know, it's 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 nice to to give some love to my favorite original series movie for sure. Yeah. But, Perfect. But Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, anytime you want to come back, we'd we'd love to have you. So, thanks again.
2: Thanks, guys. Always fun. Thank you.
1: It's always fun talking with
0: John. He's just a, a wealth of information. If you want to learn more about him and talk to him, you can find him on Twitter at mjtenudo. Well, it was fun talking about Star Trek VI with John, but that's not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network.
2: Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit.
1: Well, it's very small and intimate and you get to see you know a lot of people whose work you've come to admire or whatever and i mean that's what's kind of cool about it the the fact that it's in a hotel it's at the rio Mm -hmm. and you know everyone is staying there earl gray
0: Really she's following the Hasperat, I think, is really what it is. <laughs> Come for the revolution, stay for the hosperat. it's gotta be fresh
2: hasperat. None of that replicated
0: stuff. I, like Daniel's like, at the watching the end of this episode, like tears are coming down the face. It's like, oh, it's the hosperat, it's so spicy, it's what it is.
1: <laughs> the orb. Also, the
0: original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding. Which when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. <laughs>
2: The Ready Room. It's about people and feelings and emotions. It's about philosophy. It's about the future. It's about hope. It's about glory. It's about intellectual promise. That's what Axanar is about. It is not a story about pew, pew, pew. I promise you that. To the journey! (whistles) I do have one honorable mention. Name it. Proxy! How could we not have a top five season five moments without Prax? Warp 5.
0: It kind of like is akin to um, when fans saw the
2: galaxy class in The Next Generation for the very first time and you had basically a crew and civilian complement of what, over a thousand people? About two-thirds of that complement were civilians and their families. So you actually did have teachers and scholars and scientists and their extended families on
0: board. Commentary, Trek stars.
2: One of the things that amazes me about the score for Star Trek The Motion Picture is that he he only had 50% of the movie available to him when he scored. So he, he was scoring an awful lot to scene missing, scene missing. The 602 Club.
0: Where did cool. he get the cloak from on the <laughs> other planet? I really, really, really want to know. He shows up uh, with the he, cloak. He, he,
1: he kind of fashioned it out
0: of out of a lud- rudimentary
1: lane. <laughs> <ladies>. uh. <Yeah.
0: laughs>
2: Literary Treks.
0: It's a small point, but I thought it was really interesting to have here in the book because, again, that's what Star Trek Deep Space Nine has really always done for Star Trek, which is kind of make faith okay in the star trek universe and show how it's valid and so i thought that was a really nice in uh, it again it's a it's a tiny point in the book but i thought it was pretty powerful at least for me who is somebody who is a faith. so mm-hmm. axonar the official podcast
2: it is the spirit of tos that matters that's being captured but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time, and there's a certain amount of charm still to that, but it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Keiko could totally beat the
1: crap out of Rumpelstiltskin. This is so, like, I cannot buy this at all. That she's just sitting there being like, oh, my baby. At the very least, she could throw a plant at him or something. Because we established in TNG that pot foo is a thing.
0: And that's
2: what else is happening on Trek.fm.
0: So check out these shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Spreaker, or you can just stream from the website. Just visit trek.fm slash podcast to get all the links. If you want to contact us and share your thoughts on today's show, you can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose Send Show and choose Standard Orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the tab on the left-hand column of any page to send us a voicemail using your webcam's microphone. And you can talk to us and our other listeners at our Facebook group, The Babel Conference. In social media, you'll find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash trek.fm and on Twitter under username trek.fm. You can find Mike on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can find him on his website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, and you can find him right here on FM on CommentaryTrackStars. You can find me on Twitter at 005-D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who helps spring standard orbit to you each week, and our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible's a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive and Federation, Audible has something for everyone. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today, catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you yet to read, and that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Standard Orbit and Trek FM. We'd also like to thank Richard Rutledge Jr. and Renee Roberts for being our associate producers this week by supporting us on Patreon. You can find Richard on Twitter at RUT8972 and Renee at MRes underscore 1701. If you want to join them in helping keep us in orbit, you can support us on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash trekfm, you'll find a list of donation levels, where you can get things like exclusive digital goodies, early access to episodes, access to our project managers, and even be listed as an associate producer for our shows. You can find out where the donations can go, things are covering the monthly cost of hosting and distribution, hiring an editor for our shows, and upgrading our equipment. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm, so check it out. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Have a good week and keep on trekking. It is the will of Landrew.
1: Mr. Chekov. Take us out of orbit. Ahead, walk factor one. Nice, sir.